We've done 45 million tests. If we did half that number, you'd have half the cases. No. No, you wouldn't. That's not how this works. That's not how this works at all. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Nobody. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF, amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates. And then we also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on the internets every day. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. And it will be thrilling, will it not, Desi oh, Doyen? indeed. Thrilling indeed. We got nothing. <laughs> we got nothing. Anyway, welcome back to the show. Uh, glad to have you here. Uh, if we have nothing else, we got Desi Doyen and the Green News Report coming up a bit later. Well, she, she is plenty to look forward she to. She always saves my bacon. <laughs> Let's start here. After spending weeks attacking the media for warning him that uh, health experts thought it unwise to reopen the state of Florida for business, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis isn't doing that so much anymore. He's not attacking the people who have been uh, warning him about the state he is now in. Given how uh, the COVID cases, uh, how many COVID cases are now uh, coming out day after day after day, just as health experts and media experts, uh, media, well, media people had warned. Cases now are exploding in the Sunshine State, as we talked about yesterday, and frankly, as we've been talking about for the last week or two, as this has been ongoing following Ron DeSantis's attack on those of us who tried to warn of exactly this. Well, the very Trumpy Republican governor is now even beginning to admit at least some of the failures that are now plaguing his state, as opposed to pretending everything is fine. He found pretending isn't working? Well, it worked for Donald Trump. That's his plan for dealing with the virus. Uh, It doesn't appear to have been working so well down in Florida. On Monday, DeSantis actually lamented that Floridians are not receiving their COVID-19 test results fast enough. 
as the state continues experiencing mass surges in coronavirus cases. This is something we warned about a week or so ago, that uh, states were running out of the rapid tests, and they were having to use these other older tests that take five to seven days to get results back. Which means that people can be out there spreading it without even knowing. Correct. During a news conference, at or by the way, they can uh, get their test results back as negative, but they can have uh, contracted the virus in the meantime, in the days following the test. Yeah, so now Brilliant. they go out thinking they don't have the virus, but they actually do. So uh, during a news conference at Miami's Jackson Memorial Hospital, DeSantis conceded that, quote, there's a need for faster results. Oh, do you think? When people go through, a lot of times they're not getting their results back for seven days, DeSantis said. Obviously, we want to improve that. Oh, do you, Gov? That's nice of you. Have you mentioned that to your friend in the White House? Just asking. DeSantis has come under scrutiny for his aggressive approach to reopening in the spring as COVID-19 cases in the state now increase at an alarming rate on Sunday. Florida shattered the national record for single-day increases by hitting 15,300 new confirmed cases in one single day. That is more than most countries around the planet. Last week, the Florida, just Florida alone, last week the Florida governor failed to deliver his promise to report daily hospitalization data for some reason for all of the state's 67 counties. So how bad is it really in Florida? Well, we have no idea. Late last month, DeSantis insisted that he has no plans to reinstate coronavirus-related restrictions or to close businesses despite the recent surge. His remarks on Florida, quote, not going back, actually came a week after he had ordered exactly that. He had ordered the closure of bars and pubs and nightclubs that he had previously allowed to reopen that because of the widespread violations of social distancing requirements in the state. DeSantis's latest remarks come as the Trump administration continues to blame the surge of coronavirus cases nationwide on increased testing, even though it is not increased testing that is the problem. It is the increased rate of positive tests coming back. Nonetheless, Trump bragged to attendees at his uh, Tulsa campaign Uh, rally last month that he had uh, asked administration officials to slow down the testing, please. After the White House tried to cover for him uh, by saying that he was just joking about that, he was just kidding around. Trump undercut his own White House spokes liars by actually doubling down on his assertion soon after by telling reporters that, quote, I don't kid. When pressed on his remarks at the Tulsa rally, well, he doesn't kid. He was trying to slow down the testing. He still arguably is. Even now, three weeks later, he's still trying to justify his comments that, you know, if we just did less testing, we wouldn't have all of these coronavirus cases. Here he is yesterday, yesterday at a White House event on uh, something or other. So we uh, do the testing and... Uh, By doing the testing, we have tremendous numbers of cases. If we didn't do the, as an example, we've done 45 million tests. If we did half that number, you'd have half the cases, probably around that number. If we did, if we did another half of that, you'd have half the numbers. Everyone would be saying, oh, we're doing so well on cases. 
But when I see it reported in the night, you can check me out on this. I mean, they always talk about they're always talking about uh, cases, the number of cases. Well, it is a big factor that we do. We have a lot of cases because we have a lot of testing far more than any other country in the world. And it's also the best testing. <laughs> OK, yeah, uh, it's just. Yeah. Where do you start with that? Hey, it is not the best testing. One of the reasons we're in this mess right now is that the. Tests put out by the CDC at the beginning were contaminated, but the Trump administration would not allow the U.S. to use tests from others, from other countries and from the World Health Organization that actually worked. So we lost at least a month or so on testing at the at the very beginning due to his failure. And B, we would have the same number of cases no matter how many tests we did or didn't do. We just wouldn't know about them if we didn't do the tests as people continue to be hospitalized and die. Huh. I wonder why they're going to the hospital. I wonder why they're putting them on a respirator. I wonder why they're dying. Uh, this as the increasing numbers of, of both hospitalizations and deaths are now uh, across the country are, are, are showing us. A few days after Trump's rally in Tulsa, uh, TPM had first reported that the federal government was then planning to roll back its support of testing sites in five states. So, no, he was not kidding around when he said that he told his people to slow the testing down, please. Now, happily, the administration has reversed course on shutting down federal testing sites. That was a few days after TPM's report had sparked outrage, bipartisan outrage, and as cases continued to surge in the states where Donald Trump was trying to shut down the testing. In short, if you tried to create a failed response to this pandemic, you probably could not do a worse job than Donald Trump's federal government has done day after day after day since the beginning of this, even if you tried. Now, I am happy to note that the administration today also appears to be backing down on uh, another element of this, backing down from their threat to remove visas to have ICE remove visas from foreign exchange students uh, who were attending schools that did not find it safe to reopen for in-person classes this fall. That after some 17 states and uh, 200 or so schools filed a lawsuit against the federal government's efforts to purposely undermine attempts to respond safely to the virus. That, even as they are still insisting that schools, the administration, insisting that schools must reopen next month or face some sort of penalty, some sort of loss of federal funding. It's unclear what they actually can do legally. But since when has the law stopped the Trump administration from doing whatever the hell they want? Uh, health and, and school officials alike describe that notion as insane to open uh, for classes next month with cases surging all over the country. Not just cases surging, but in, in the rate of cases. I guess we have to say that. The rate of infections, the hospitalizations, the deaths. And remember, way back in March and April, how one of the biggest short-term problems we had at the very beginning of this pandemic was not having enough personal protective equipment for the, uh, for the medical workers. Well, here we are, about five months later, and guess what? 
As NBC News reports exclusively this afternoon, the federal government may not have the capacity to supply medical professionals with personal protective equipment amid the latest surge in coronavirus cases, according to internal administration documents that were obtained by NBC News. For example, they write... The Strategic National Stockpile and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, have fewer than 900,000 gloves in reserve after shipping 82.7 million of them, or just 30%, 30% of the amount requested by state, local, and tribal governments. That, according to figures compiled Sunday by the Health and Human Services Department, uh, for senior leaders of the interagency coronavirus task force effort. In particular, nursing homes and long-term care facilities say there is a major personal protective equipment shortage. Five months into this thing. Mark Parkinson, the president and CEO of the American Healthcare Association and the National Center for Assisted Living, writes in a letter to governors today, quote, currently nearly 20 percent of nursing homes report to the CDC that they either do not have or have less than one week supply, one week supply of PPE. And more than half of assisted living communities, he writes, have less than a two-week supply of N95 masks and gowns. N95 masks are still not available and were not included in the FEMA shipments to nursing homes. Well, why would you need them in nursing homes? Sean Powell, a senior official at the healthcare consulting group Premier Inc., which works with hospitals and other care providers, said his firm is no longer confident that current federal inventories are sufficient to meet the additional increases in demand. He said our primary focus for our 4,000 hospitals has shifted to conservation until we see additional output from private sector manufacturing. So, in other words... Reusing, recycling, using the same masks over and over again, which you are decidedly not supposed to do. The disclosure comes as Trump's and uh, senior administration officials uh, pressure state and local governments to reopen commerce and prepare to open schools in the fall, NBC notes, despite rising fatalities, rising hospitalizations and rising rates of infection in major metropolitan areas and small towns alike across the country. After months of Trump downplaying the public health risk of the disease and proclaiming the federal response a shining success, the administration's internal data, their own data, suggests the federal government's ability to help meet any major surge in demand is now limited at very best. Between FEMA and the national stockpile, the administration has only been able to provide 29 percent of the 4.9 million requested by state and local governments, requests for goggles in this case so far, according to uh, documents obtained by NBC, just 29% of what is requested five months into this thing. Similarly, 8.5 million gowns are currently warehoused, while only 5.2 million of the 18 million gowns that have been requested, again, 29%, have been shipped out. The government can't get the equipment made, apparently, and when they do have at least some of it, they can't get it shipped to where it needs to be. Or maybe they don't want to. I don't know. 
As noted, if you wanted to have a failed response to a deadly global pandemic, you would be hard-pressed to fail by virtually every metric worse than this administration already has. High school kids could probably handle this better. Seriously, high school kids could probably do this better and... Well, at least one group of high school kids in Atlanta, Georgia, does seem to be doing it better. At least by a few of these measures, at least compared to FEMA's disastrous response to get some much-needed PPE to frontline workers who need it. One of those high school kids reached out to us a few weeks ago to discuss how he and his classmates really are outpacing the federal government in certain respects, that high school kid joins us next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Yeah, they can't come running soon enough. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. About two weeks ago, just before the July 4 holiday, I received an email via bradcast at bradblog.com that begins this way. Hey, Brad, my name is Shuria Seth. I'm a high school senior in Atlanta, Georgia. My friends and I started a grassroots organization to help out with the coronavirus pandemic. And I need your help spreading the word that reopening states will cause a worse shutdown than before. The number of new cases has shot up by 80 percent, writes Shuria, just in the past two weeks. For example, a lot of businesses were in a bad state even before the pandemic. During the previous shutdown, while several businesses were able to stake through and survive, this next shutdown might cause the final blow that will shut down many permanently. That, of course, was two weeks ago. And as we've been reporting over most of those two weeks, Shuria was right. Things have gotten much worse since then, particularly in states like Shuria's Georgia and neighboring Florida. And unfortunately, too many Republican-controlled states where governors reopened for business far too soon and long before health professionals advised that it was safe to do so. Well, the result, as you now know, is skyrocketing infection rates, hospitalization rates, and yes, now death rates once again. As Shuria also predicted, and with both the White House and Republicans in Congress unwilling to provide additional emergency relief beyond their initial short-term efforts, as businesses have indeed been forced to shut down again in many states, more such closure closures are now almost certainly on the way as the pandemic continues to surge nearly unabated in the U.S. 
As all of this is going on, many businesses which were able to survive thanks to short-term relief are now shuttering permanently. Worse, many of the same shortages that plagued the healthcare system at the very beginning of this pandemic, the shortages of testing kits, shortages of personal protective equipment or PPE for frontline medical workers, shamefully, those shortages still persist now some five months into the crisis. As the Republican plan to simply ignore the virus away, shockingly, did not seem to work. But never mind the failed, if deadly, politics. We still have medical workers forced to ration PPE in hospitals, even as ICUs are being filled to capacity once again in states like Florida and Texas and Arizona and even, if to a lesser extent, here in California. That, as Donald Trump has still failed to adequately invoke the considerable powers granted to the president of the United States under the Defense Production Act to commandeer manufacturers into producing the much needed personal protective equipment required by our frontline workers to stay alive so that they can help us stay alive during this pandemic. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi noted as much over the weekend during one of her appearances on the Sunday news shows. They ignore science and they ignore governance in order to uh, make this happen. We have to call upon the president uh, to implement the Defense Production Act so that we can have the PPE, the personal protective equipment, as well as the testing equipment and the equipment to evaluate. All of these things are central to controlling this virus and essential to whether our children go back to school safely. That was Nancy Pelosi just on Sunday calling on the president to once again invoke the Defense Production Act to help create PPE that is needed now uh, as much as ever. So back to that email from the Atlanta High School senior, uh, Shurya, who notes, I am part of Project Paralink, an organization started by a group of high schoolers. I'm contacting you because I was wondering if you would be interested in featuring us on an episode of your podcast. We are fairly new to the industry, to the industry, and your platform could prove immensely helpful so we can keep producing and delivering PPE to the front lines. So far, we have been able to manufacture and donate over 390,000 PPE units, ranging from face shields to masks to over 1,500 locations. If you are open to it, we would love to get in a brief call with you. Regards, Shurya Seth and the team at Project Paralink. Well, it would be my honor, Shurya. Joining us now is Shurya Seth. He is the Chief Operating Officer of Project Paralink, which, in addition to producing and donating more than 390,000 pieces of PPE since beginning the project, now features nearly 1,000 volunteers in four states across the U.S. and... From their website at projectparalink.org, sounds like they are just getting started. Shuria, welcome to the broadcast, and thank you both for your work and for reaching out. Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure, sir. You uh, So your website uh, discusses this a bit, but how did you guys get started uh, doing this? I understand it came out of a separate project that you had begun before the pandemic, but uh, you sort of yeah. needed to sideline that because of the pandemic? Yes. 
Um, so essentially, um, it was it was around uh, mid March. Uh, it was a group of five people that we had. The group of five founders. Uh, two of us were interested in supply chain and logistics, and then the other three were interested on in computer science. And essentially, we came together for a type of math project where we set into this topic called combinatorial optimization. Um, essentially, we were creating an algorithm to find the best line of fit in different areas, and, and it's, it's a commonly used application in place in uh, applications like Google Maps. And essentially, we wanted to study more and see if we could create an algorithm that would break down um, essentially the topic and see if we could implement it in different uh, areas, and especially in supply chain industrial engineering. Um, you know, one of the things my, our, our CEO of our organization, Edward Aguilar, he was also interested in was supply chain logistics alongside me. And uh, we would be doing different sort of like small projects, such as like handling uh, the body of materials for robotics teams. And, and it was really like small you know, the small project that really got us interested into. Mm-hmm. Um, and as the project was progressing, mid-March is when the news of the pandemic hit us and the school was closed. And right before the school was closed, a lot of advisors told us, a lot of our teachers told us that, you know, you should just cancel the project, stay through the whole pandemic, and then when we return to school, you know, you can start on it again. And really, that was when Edward and I, we started researching into the problem and started looking into supply chain and just, just wanted to see what were the inefficiencies in, in just the whole national supply chain, seeing like if the federal agencies were handling the, you know, the pandemic properly. Um, you know, what happened after was we, we did a lot of research on, for, for example, what the doctors in Italy were warning us, mm-hmm. how the CDC had been handling kits, and, I, and I'll get back to it later as well. And other organizations, for example, Akita, how they were warning President Trump about what's going to happen with the supply chain. And, you know, the bureaucratic process obviously denied, you know, denied fast responses. And it was it was just terrible for us to see. So what we ended up deciding was that we would do something to, you know, fix the problem, at least in the state of Georgia, because we didn't want people, people that we knew, people that were close relatives, close friends, to see them being affected so, so badly by the pandemic, because we'd seen the same effects in, um, you know, places like Italy. Uh-huh. And essentially what we did was we started calling hospitals just one week into the pandemic, and we just talked to them, it's like, you know, what sort of PPE supplies do you need? How, you know, what's the runway looking like? How much, how much PPE supplies do you have to last? A lot of them are just like, we're, we don't have any PPE supplies left. We're just reusing them from last week. And, you know, now, at least in, in you know, modern day right now, it's a, they have at least one week of PPE supplies left, uh, usually for every hospital where they can have, have, uh, <laughs> have, have yeah. it for one week and then at least, you know, order on a week-by-week basis. But at that point, they didn't have it on a week-by-week basis. And we actually called a few of our relatives. Uh, I personally had a cousin working at one of the hospitals near in Metro Atlanta. And I talked to him, and he said that he had been using his N95 mask for the past three weeks. Oh and it had gotten so bad because we, we tried to quote a few people just to see how bad it was. And the problem was a lot of hospitals are just denying statements because, you know, who would want to go to a hospital which would say, like, you know, we don't have enough PPE supplies. A lot so, of the hospitals now, if you... Yep. So, so there was, uh, so there were hospitals who did not want to admit that they had uh, real shortages of mm-hmm. this equipment when you talked to them. Mm-hmm. A and, lot of the hospitals are straight just refer to us, uh, refer us to their PR teams, and be like, "You first talk to them before we can make a statement because we can potentially get fired because of this." Wow. So it took a while yeah. for you to get to know them to the point where they were willing to admit that, well, yeah, we could use a bit more PPE. Yeah, it was it was seriously bad, and, and when we finally got to the PR teams. And we had to go through the whole process. We started calling hospitals and started noting down just, and at that point it was a spreadsheet and trying to figure out how we would implement the algorithm within it. And, and you know, it took us a week. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it, what was this? Is this then the the algorithm that you use? Is that about uh, delivering these supplies, or is this about actually manufacturing these supplies? Because I understand that you guys are actually somehow uh, managing to manufacture uh, thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of pieces of PPE. Well, yeah, essentially, um, this was a combination. So we handled manufacturing and the delivery of PPE supplies. And uh, what we did was, in, in the beginning, we contacted some of the organizations here in Atlanta that were at least uh, manufacturing supplies. And with their algorithm, it helped them, It helped them first of all, make their whole uh, manufacturers or factories more efficient through like lean manufacturing and GIT manufacturing. And then we introduced our algorithm into the delivery side of things, where we would essentially coordinate from those manufacturers and get the PPE supplies delivered to hospitals. So it was essentially a combination of the manufacturers and the delivery side of things where, um, where we managed to donate all the PPE supplies. Uh, it's it's uh, amazing what you guys have been able to do. Uh, now, now I understand you run completely on donations. How did you get started mm-hmm. producing really hundreds of thousands of pieces of PPE when it seems like our federal government could not even do so? Did you receive some sort of a startup money, grant money, to, to begin the project in the first place? Mm-hmm. So we actually had a couple of company uh, corporate sponsors reach out to us, and and you know one of the one of the most giving ones was Co- the Coca Cola Foundation. Mm-hmm. They gave us a ton of resources, such as like plastic that they use to make different sort of products within their factories. Um, we had the UPS Foundation starting to help us out with the transportation fees, and we even had Aflac, the Arthur M. Blank Davis Foundation, give us money to get um, you know resources. Mm-hmm. So it, it was it was. All that started to accumulate as we started making partnerships with organizations that were, you know, for example, like manufacturing PPE supplies. We would we would essentially partner up with them. And, for example, in Atlanta, we had Atlanta Beats COVID. Um, on a national level, we got Gettys PPE. They're one of the nation's largest uh, PPE donors. And we talked to them. We asked them for uh, corporate sponsors. And a lot of the companies reached out to us. And we were like, you know, we love what you're doing. And, you know, if, if you could... Uh, if you could accept this donation from us, we'd love to see it go towards a good cause. This and, uh, from there, we really built it up, and you know where we are today. Yeah, uh, your website describes the work as localized disaster relief, explaining that Paralink mm-hmm. is helping states across the country respond faster than ever to disaster through our Parapod relief stockpiles and hive manufacturing. Local states now have mm-hmm. a powerful auxiliary supply line for the items they need most. I presume that uh, hive manufacturing now is this a we saw earlier in the in the pandemic uh, uh, people who had. 3D printers and so forth were actually printing up these masks. Is that how you guys are, are proceeding with your manufacturing, where you have uh, you know volunteers around the country actually producing this equipment at home? Yeah, well, it's ex- ex- actually, that's ex- it's a combination of both. So we do have a lot of people, and right now, right now we're moving into even a more decentralized model. But essentially, we did have a lot of people initially. And those small manufacturing plants have their own 3D printers at home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we started when we started to implement the algorithm, we would also it also tell them, like, you know, if, if it's more efficient to come to the makerspace, and those are essentially the small manufacturers every single day, or it would be better to just make 3D, print, 3D printed face shields at home. So essentially, the headband part of the 3D uh, of the face shields were 3D printed a lot of people's houses. And we took those alongside what we were making at small manufacturing plants where they had machines to also make face shields. And we created a model, which is, again, as a localized disaster relief. Mm-hmm. One of the problems with the federal supply chain was was that, as, as you know, the Trump administration would mention to, to factories, like, okay, you have to completely retool your factories to get PPE supplies. 
though, that would take essentially three to four weeks because you're talking about large, large factories retooling all their machines and, and trying to make, you know, masks and facials, things that they've never made before, and, and trying to produce them on a large scale. What we did instead was localized disaster relief where we'd get small manufacturers, which was easier for them to retool, and we would get people individually helping us out as well to create a sort of uh, a guerrilla network of sorts and get the PPE supplies delivered faster than the federal supply chain. A guerrilla network of sorts. Now we're talking. I'm speaking with Shuria <laughs> Seth. He's the chief operating officer at projectparalink.org. So what are uh, parapod relief stockpiles, as you refer to them? So one of the things that we wanted to do was, as as and this was actually something we focused on a lot just before the surge cases, we started noticing a downward trend in the cases, a very, very slow downward trend. Mm-hmm. And we realized a lot of people, for example, like Dr. Fauci, were talking about a second wave or potential second wave of the pandemic coming during, you know, winter. If you, if you, if you Dr. Fauci mentioned a lot of uh, media sources or media outlets that he went to, that according to, you know, virology, as winter approaches, there is a very likely chance that from the southern hemisphere of the planet, as the cases are rising there, people would start coming over to the northern hemisphere and the cases right in the northern hemisphere event. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the second wave already came on a much, much larger scale. Yeah. But we wanted to create the stockpiles in states to prepare for the future. We, we understood that, you know, I, a lot of times, <laughs> as you said, like a lot of the Republican-controlled state governments, gubernatorial governments, we're ignoring those warnings, but we understood, like, you know, according to virology, just according to uh, common sense, that the cases were going to rise again. And we decided yeah. that, hey, we should create stockpiles, we should create parapods, essentially, and uh, make those stockpiles. So these are pods that are basically in place around the country, around various states, as needed as disaster strikes, and, and whether it's... Uh, uh, the the pandemic, I noticed at one point on your uh, website, on your blog, I think you talk about wanting to uh, replace FEMA or at least augment FEMA. So th- these would be mm-hmm. emergency pods ready to crack open in the event of an in, in the event of a disaster that are already in place around the states and the and, and the country. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. actually, this was this was exactly what some of our advisors told us. Well, essentially, when we were when I said, you know, we talked, we listened to what Dr. Fauci was saying. We also talked to professionals in the supply chain and logistics industry, and this included everything from professors to people who were vice presidents and presidents at major companies. We uh-huh. even had the vice president of uh, Delta Airlines talk to us, and he handled the majority of logistics at Delta Airlines. Uh-huh. We had the president of uh, UPS Supply Chain Solutions. We had operations and management professors at Georgia Tech. We talked to them, and we asked them, like, you know, this is essentially, we, we work in logistics on a small scale. But on a larger scale, what are some recommendations you would make? And and one thing we heard across the board was prepare for the future. Prepare, be the ones that think ahead. Because, mm. again, as we saw with the federal government, they never prepared ahead. And, you know, we're in this state right now. Yeah, we that's... decided that, hey... Yeah. Well, that, that, yeah, that's what I wanted to ask. I mean, you uh, you mentioned in your email, and it was two weeks ago, that uh, infection mm-hmm. rates had increased some 80% in the two weeks prior. And I don't know if you were referring then to uh, specifically to Georgia, uh, where you guys mm-hmm. are, are located specifically, or to the national numbers. But how are things mm-hmm. uh, right now in Georgia? How much worse have they gotten uh, since you reached out two weeks ago? And, and do you feel that state and local response to this uh, crisis uh, has been adequate out there? Yeah, so we wanted to get a holistic review of different places and see how, what the scenario was. Um, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, the government forgot to do simple things like surveillance testing, and we wanted to at least implement that on 
on, on the scale of Jordan to see what was happening. So what we found out actually was in the communities, um, you know, surrounding Metro Atlanta, we saw an increase of PPE requests of over 148%. And then within Atlanta, we saw over 310% during those surge in cases. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it got to a point where a lot of this national service that we were operating under that, that we provide to other states outside of Georgia, we noticed that those servers completely crashed. Uh, the days that that, that case, this case is rise by 10,000 to 20,000, mm. the servers completely crashed. And then we started conducting surveys, and, and this survey is composed of 80% of the locations we donated to at that time. Mm-hmm. And we found out, again, was surrounding communities in Metro Atlanta, 148% increase. Um, within Metro Atlanta, I mean, within Atlanta, we saw 310% of increase. Um, and and it, it just got worse and worse because some hospitals had gone back to the position where they were only left with one week of supplies. And it was it was just, you know, it's really frustrating to see that the federal government was not doing anything about it. But no. we, we at least conducted the surveys and we had the parapository in that instance as well. Wow. Yeah, and and as you are uh, or or were a high schooler, did you just graduate, or will you be a senior in this uh, coming school year, Shuria? So I'm going to be a senior next year, alongside okay. my team as well. We're all rising seniors. Okay. So I was a junior. Yeah. Uh, you, you guys are good. Uh, how do you feel with that in mind? How do you feel about this push, uh, mainly by the Trump administration, to sort of immediately open schools for in-person classes? Five days a week, beginning next month. Is your school ready for that? Would you feel safe at this point going back to in-person classes in a few weeks? I would definitely not. And and one of the things I have been seeing is the Trump administration is pushing or, or is pushing schools to reopen alongside, you know, uh-huh. Betsy DeVos under his administration. They're pushing for schools to reopen, and they are threatening schools or threatening states uh-huh. uh, to not give them any school funding or any education funding if schools don't reopen, you know, physically. And it doesn't make sense to me because we closed down schools when we had around 1,000 cases. Uh And right now when we're at 3 million cases, it it really doesn't make sense for if one in every 100 people have the coronavirus, why would we be reopening schools? It it just does not make sense to me. Well, there's an election coming (laughs) up, Shuria. Pay attention. (laughs) I I can't tell you how impressed and and grateful I am to to you and your friends and your team of volunteers. At at the same time, i got to say... I'm more than a bit annoyed that kids like you need to even do something like this. It seems like this is the sort of job this is that you know this is what we pay taxes for to our federal and and state governments. Uh, has mm-hmm. uh, Atlanta Mayor uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms and or Georgia Governor Brian Kemp been in touch to help with your efforts or to at least say thank you for them? No, they haven't. And and you know it's funny because recently. Recently, we actually passed FEMA in the donation of face shields, and this is something that we announced in a couple of articles and really didn't see any coordination, at least on the gubernatorial level, and we, we didn't have any sort of, or, or the city level as well. We didn't have, you know, the mayor responding to us or, or the governor responding to us. But um, Wait, Let me get this you know, right, Shuria. Shuria, you're, you're saying you passed FEMA, you, you produced and delivered more face shields than FEMA did? Mm-hmm. So on June 11th, FEMA put out a public press release, and that's their latest public press release. Essentially, um, they released a public press release uh, giving out state-by-state PPE data. Uh-huh. And when we looked at Georgia, what we found out was that FEMA had, at that time, only been able to produce 189,000 face shields, while we had been able to produce 370,000 <laughs> face shields, essentially <laughs> doubling the output. And, and the funny part is some of the donations that we made were to FEMA. 
So while we, we had been overproducing, we'd also been donating to FEMA. To and FEMA. Trying to, Un- yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. You guys are just... Uh, Amazing. I am so impressed with what you're doing. I'm so grateful, even as I say, while I'm a little bit irritated that you have to do this at all. Uh, how can our listeners help your efforts at Project Paralink, Shurya? Yeah, so um, honestly, just going to our website and going to the contact form, you can just contact us and tell us if you have any sort of connections. Uh, a lot of times we're looking for people that are connected to the makerspace community, people mm-hmm. that have resources i mean we had we had businesses such as like a ballet ballet dancing group we had a fishing pole company just donate resources to us the ballet dancing group even they would assemble face shields after hours i mean any sort of help is is a great help for us like we, we, we would if you just contact with us we'd love to sit down and talk to you if, if your business can help us out you know we'd love to help out We're right now expanding into a couple of southern states we're helping out in california and new york as well so you know, if you have any sort of questions or inquiries or ways that you can help us out, love just reach out to us. It's a. It sounds like a true community effort. You have it, your website currently says four states. So I know uh, Georgia. What are the other states that you're currently working in? So Georgia, Florida, Tennessee, and then Alabama. Florida, Tennessee, and Alabama, and and now looking to get into uh, where'd you say California and New York? Yeah. So we've made a few donations in California, New York, and uh, and and. New Mexico as well as the Navajo Nation, but yeah, essentially we work in a couple four major states in the South United States. Right now. Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, as as disturbing as everything is in this uh, moment in history that we are going through right now with this pandemic, uh, with climate change, which we report on a lot in this uh, on this show, and uh, mm-hmm. you know that we feel awful, uh, quite frankly, uh, how badly. Folks uh, my age have screwed up the world for people like you to know that at least people like you are stepping up to fix our failures. Uh, I feel a lot better about the future. So I can't thank you enough for uh, stepping up to do what you're doing uh, and for reaching out to us here on the broadcast. I hope you will stay in touch, Shurya, uh, as the project moves forward and and let us know whatever we can do to to help again uh, here in the future. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. I seriously appreciate that. Uh, Thank you. Stay at it. Stay safe. Stay healthy. And, well, I never thought I'd say this to a high schooler, but stay out of school, Sharia. It's uh, <laughs> it's too damn dangerous there. Really appreciate your time today. You can find uh, Sharia Seth at as the Chief Operating Officer at ProjectParalink.org. You can also find them on the Twitters at P. Paralink, uh, and of course on the Instagram at Project Paralink. Shoya, really appreciate it. Hope to talk to you again in the near future. Thank you, Brad. See you soon. Well, I, you know what, Des? I do <laughs> feel better. I'm not kidding. Yeah, no, it's 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 really really encouraging and inspiring to see that you know the kids today they're actually getting out there and making changes happen now to to make us to help us get through this because that's what we're going to need. You know, now we know how old you are because you just said the kids today. I know. So, yeah. <laughs> but I seriously, I mean, uh, these guys have their act together. These guys know what they're talking about. Uh, these guys, frankly, I wish were on the White House uh, coronavirus, coronavirus Task Force. Force. Yes. And I actually yeah. personally, I, I hope that whichever one of them is over 18, that they are registered yeah. to vote and ready to vote. There you go. Sure. Yeah. For president. <laughs> 
Uh, we couldn't do worse. So uh, th- that's awesome. All right, quick break, and we're coming back with uh, Desi Doyen and the Green News Report with uh, more disasters that will need folks like Shuria to clean up after us. That's straight ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Just uh, breaking uh, minutes ago, it looks like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, has been hospitalized with uh, a possible infection after experiencing fever and chills. Oh, boy. Just to ruin everyone's day. Well, you know, uh, uh, we'll just keep hoping and praying we do. for Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Good Lord. Well, all right. We got to get to our Green News report here in a minute, but uh, this story out uh, not in time for today's uh, GNR. Joe Biden released a plan on Tuesday aimed at combating climate change and spurring economic growth in part by overhauling America's energy industry with a proposal to achieve entirely carbon pollution-free power by 2035. Entirely, for the entire country, I presume, here, by 2035. That seems as early as it could possibly be done, frankly. But what do I know? How much uh, carbon emissions are we actually talking about in the power sector, Desi Doyen? Uh, We're talking a lot. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but the power sector is one of the biggest carbon emitters sectors of the economy. And it's already becoming cleaner with the deployment of renewable energy and carbon-free energy. So that is actually well on its way. The other thing that I found what was really important about what Biden was proposing in this really sweeping climate policy Mm -hmm. Proposal today was to build out an electric vehicle charging network because the next big sector that we have to focus on for cutting emissions mm-hmm. is transportation. So that's part of this as well, not just the power sector, but the uh, transportation sector as well. Exactly. So 100% clean e- electricity by 2035 and net zero economy wide by 2050. That's a big deal. That's the, the hard one to get to. The effort of the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, according to AP, is his latest to build out a legislative agenda with measures that could animate progressives who may be skeptical of Biden, who waged a more centrist campaign during the Democratic primary. This plan reflects ideas embraced by some of Biden's more progressive allies during the primary, like Jay Inslee, governor of uh, uh, Washington state. Yes, it borrows heavily from Inslee and Warren and Sanders' plans. Well, Inslee was the first to apparently propose achieving entirely carbon-free electricity by 2035. So, as you noted many times, Des, uh, just having Inslee in the primary race was was good to sort of goose everything. Oh, totally. And as I think you reported recently, um, it could also be done cheaper, could it not, than yes. sticking with our current dirty energy? Right. Uh, building new renewable energy now is cheaper than the existing coal plants that we have right now, and it is rapidly becoming cheaper than even natural gas. 
In the plan, Biden pledge, pledges to spend $2 trillion over four years to promote his energy proposal. That is a significant acceleration of the $1.7 trillion over 10 years that he had proposed spending in his climate plan during the primary. So that's more than double what he had previously promised while running for the nomination. And way faster. uh, And way faster. Yeah, had he done this earlier, he might have won the nomination earlier. But uh, I won't complain. Yeah, don't. Now, one of the things that is also important about this $2 trillion spend that he's talking about, mm-hmm. 40% of it is outlined to go to historically disadvantaged communities right. for environmental and racial justice. That's really important. He also wants to create a climate conservation corps, which would be modeled after the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps. That was the federal jobs program in the Great Depression that employed millions of out-of-work Americans to build infrastructure and our national parks and things like that. So that's a huge jobs program right there. He also wants to retrofit all the buildings in the United States, which is the other major sector Mm -hmm. that must be cut back on emissions in order to solve climate change. And the whole reason that he is spending this $2 trillion in four years instead of 10 years It'll be a lot harder for the Republicans to sabotage it. Yeah, that's what he talked about. He wants to put in something that uh, he says, God willing, I win. And even if I serve eight years, I want to make sure we put down such a marker that it is impossible for the next president to turn it around. Yep. Uh, He argued during a a Monday evening uh, fundraiser that the current, quote, historic set of crises, a pandemic, an economic crisis and systemic racism, would make it easier to pass major reforms like his climate plan to deal with, you know, the other crisis, the climate crisis. Climate change, Biden said, is the existential threat to humanity, and it is real, and it is urgent, and the public is becoming aware of it, which, by the way, I attribute entirely to Desi Doyen. (laughs) And it may be the very answer to get us out of this economic situation we're in. Well, we can only hope. But if what is about to happen with jobs uh, over the next couple of months does happen uh, with the jobs and the economy, as I fear, as I fear things are going to get much worse before they get better. Yes. As that happens, uh, then, yeah, a, a New Deal style wartime effort to put people back to work on a project like this would be just the ticket. One might even call it. A Green New Deal, in fact. But I guess we're not supposed to use that word anymore. Yeah, we don't want to scare the Republicans. Poor little snowflakes. They can't handle it. (laughs) They are easily scared. Uh, Anyway, more on uh, Biden's plan, I suspect, in our next Green News report later this week, no doubt. But until then... Here is our latest Green News report. We've got a lot of heat and humidity to talk about. Extended extreme heat wave spreads across U.S. June 2020, second hottest June ever recorded. Bankrupt oil and gas companies leave taxpayers with the cleanup bill. Plus, Donald Trump ignored expert warnings about coronavirus. On climate, he won't listen to scientists or the military. Environmental group hits Trump on COVID and climate denial. All of that catastrophic denial. And more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. It's time to talk about Donald J. Trump. Are you okay, okay, Congressman? Uh, Are you all right? Yep. Okay. You sure? 
Okay. Okay. Gosh, Congressman Glenn Grothman, maybe you shouldn't have gone to that Republican in-person state convention in Wisconsin. Hope you ain't got the COVID. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, it's not only hot out there, it's record hot out there. Oh, yes, indeed it is. First up, June 2020 was the second hottest June ever recorded globally, second only to June 2016. That's according to new data from both NASA and NOAA. And the last 12 months are now tied for the warmest 12-month period since record-keeping began in the mid-1800s. That is according to the European Union's climate monitoring service, Copernicus. 2020 so far is already on track to be the second warmest year ever recorded and has brought scorching new records in both the Arctic and the Antarctic. And just note that this record warmth is happening in the absence of an El Nino weather pattern in the Pacific Ocean that normally boosts global temperatures. Was there an El Nino back in 2016, the record year? Yes, it was a super El Nino. And now we're hitting these records without any help. Yep. An extreme heat wave is also baking the southern half of the nation. The National Weather Service has issued excessive heat warnings and heat advisories this week, covering 50 million Americans from Southern California to Florida. Death Valley, California, hit a searing 128 degrees Fahrenheit on Sunday. That is just one degree shy of the hottest temperature ever recorded on the entire planet, which was just two years ago in Pakistan. While intense heat waves of this magnitude are not unheard of in summer, climate scientists warn that they will become increasingly more frequent in the years ahead due to man-made climate change. Meteorologists warn that this heat wave could last multiple weeks in some regions. Great. Prolonged exposure to the heat increases the odds of heat-related deaths, so officials around the country are trying to safely open cooling centers in affected states, even as the coronavirus pandemic surges across the country. Yeah, how are we supposed to have cooling centers where everybody comes into a room together to cool down? That's what they're trying to figure out. That sounds like a terrible idea. In other news, remember when oil prices for U.S. crude briefly crashed below zero back in April? So low that they were actually paying people to take the oil off their hands. Yep, now it is July, and the benchmark price for crude is still hovering around $40 a barrel due to lack of demand, and that is still beneath the break-even price for many in the fracking industry in the United States. The New York Times reports that the drilling and fracking industry is now facing a wave of bankruptcies and are abandoning unprofitable wells, leaving behind potential environmental disasters for U.S. taxpayers to pay the cleanup bill, even as CEOs walk off with million-dollar bonuses. Once again, privatizing the profits socializing the losses. Yep, just one example in the New York Times. Bankrupt Texas oil producer MDC Energy's abandoned wells are leaking climate-warming methane. It would require an estimated $40 million to clean up and shutter those wells, but the company's debts exceed the value of its assets by more than $180 million. So they're out of business. They're not going to clean it up. 
we're going to clean it up. Right. But the company did find the money to pay its CEO more than $8 million in fees. Oh, good. That's, at least that happened. In politics, venerable nonprofit environmental group the League of Conservation Voters has launched a multi-million dollar ad campaign in six swing states slamming Donald Trump's anti-science attacks on the environment and public health. For months, Donald Trump ignored warnings from public health experts about the coronavirus pandemic, and his denial turned deadly. He refuses to listen to NASA, scientists, and the military about climate change and its damage to our homes, environment, and national security. A lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. It's a hoax. Well, I'm glad they've turned that into an ad. We've been saying that here for weeks, that his denial of COVID and the Republicans' denial of COVID is really exactly like that for climate change, just compressed into a few months instead of, at this point, several decades. Yep. It's appalling and, yes, deadly. For much more on all of these reports and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Yes, science is real. <laughs> yes, thank you. They might be giants. How do we? Ha- why do we have to even say that on this show ever that science is real? Because of thirty years of the Republicans and the right wing trying to change the media landscape so that propaganda and disinformation are prioritized over actual facts and science. So we're we're rebels on this show, aren't we? We're <laughs> radicals saying science is real. Yep. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Also, my thanks to my guest today, Shuria Seth of Par- uh, Project Paralink. That's projectparalink.org. And though, uh, by the way, Shuria talked about, uh, you know, that they, they want people to contact them, businesses uh, who have ideas, people who have ideas. Yeah. Um, they also need donations. I'm just saying, because I know that that was part of his email to me, that they basically they run on donations. So, you know, if the president of the United States is not going to save this world, it's going to be up to all of us. So uh, please consider stopping by projectparalink.org and uh, contacting them, helping them out, because, man, uh, do I feel better after talking to him this afternoon. (laughs) A ragtag band of Americans. We can make this work. We can do this. Uh, I hope you're right. My thanks uh, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. While you're there, yes, we run entirely on donations as well. Please consider stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves with our radical rebellious statements like (laughs) science is real drop me email if you like i am bradcast at bradblog.com and on the facebooks and the twitters i am the brad blog that's it until we see you next time hopefully tomorrow i'm brad friedman good luck world 